The Story of Crusa The city was burning. It was the deepest part of the night, and I could feel the heat of the fires on my face as I stood rooted to the spot, struggling to make the impossible decision between life and death. The blood of Greeks was smeared slick over my arms and pouring down my legs. I didn't think any of it was mine. My breath was ragged, but I couldn't yet feel any pain. Energy was still coursing through my body, every muscle wanting, needing to move, to strike, or to run. But that was the question. To carry on, or to end now? The city was lost. I had seen the Princess Cassandra violently assaulted at the very altar of Athena. Too late to help her, I could do nothing but hear her screams and see her dragged off by some brutal Greek. They had no pity and no respect for the gods, these invaders who had finally found their way into our city. The prince was dead, the Greek king had finally got his vengeance, and our forces had been all but wiped out. So I had rushed to the side of King Priam and fought by him. We had thrown everything we had at it, literally tearing the roof tiles of the palace to hurl at them, knocking down the pillars of our own palace when we had no other weapon. But the Greeks had torn down the doors, had poured into the courtyard and set to slaughtering every man, woman and child that they found. King Priam had fought like a man half his age, even taking off the ear of the strutting young Greek attacking him. But it was not enough. The Greek was young and strong, his armour shining fresh and new under the bloodstains, with all the confidence of someone who knows his own talents only too well. He had grabbed the king by the hair and dragged him to the palace shrine, as if to show how little he cared for men or gods alike. Like a tree in the forest, the great king had been felled, and the strutting Greek ran off to some fresh target while I finished off the men who were with him. Now my king lay dead at my feet, his queen kneeling over him, wrapping him and herself in an old tattered blanket. I'd tried to get her to leave, to run. The Greeks would not be merciful. They would not kill her. They would take her for their own. But she would not come, not while she had children left, alive, maybe, out there somewhere. And so here I was, with only two choices left. I could run back into the battle, take on all the combined Greek armies alone and go down fighting. Or I could turn and run, like a coward, and live not the honourable thing to do, surely. But then, what was the point of dying as the last of my people? Who would sing of my glorious deeds when only Greeks were left? Dying in battle I did not fear, but dying alone and anonymous, just one more casualty to be trampled by the Greeks as they raised the city to the ground, my ashes to be scattered to the winds, that was not the death I had imagined. I was standing under a statue of the goddess Aphrodite, and I glanced up at it as if looking for an answer. As I looked up and the shadows and flames flickered across it, the statue almost seemed to look like my wife, Cruiser. And there was something else. My death would be my father Anchises' death as well, but worse, my wife and son would be captured and enslaved. Would they leave my little boy Ascanius alive? He was so small... Would they be afraid of a little boy? Or perhaps of the man he might grow into? And Crusa, my wife, would be captured, assaulted and taken as a prize by some animal Greek. 
sort of man who would not even respect the sanctuary of the altars of the gods. Suddenly, I was moving without even realising I'd made the decision. For myself, I could choose to die, but I would not make that choice for my family. The city was lost, there was nothing we could do. So, we would run. I could see the judgement in my father's eyes when I found them all at the house, hiding. I had fought my way through enemy soldiers and reaching flames to get to them, but Anchises was unimpressed. "'You who are young, you flee if you want to,' he said. "'But if the gods had wanted me to live longer, they would not have destroyed my home and my city. Besides, my old bones don't have it in them to run through the flames like you. Go, if that's your plan.' Leave me here to die like a true Trojan. We have to leave him, Aeneas, wept Crusa. Listen, I can hear the Greeks. They can be only a few streets away. You know what will happen to us if we don't get away. She was holding Ascanius' hand, and she pulled him towards her as she spoke. The boy winced as she squeezed his skinny fingers, but pressed himself willingly against her side. I will not leave my father here to die, I said. If he won't come, then so be it. I picked up my sword and shield, motioned for the others to stand behind me, and turned to face the door and to face death. Aeneas! cried Cruiser. Are you mad? We have lost. Why throw all our lives away for nothing? There was a pause, and I heard her take a deep breath behind me. Well, I am going, she said. If I run with Ascanius, there's a chance we'll get out. If we stay here, there's only slavery or death. She picked up the boy and slung him onto her hip, in a way she hadn't since he was half that size. Then she grabbed a knife from one of the servants to hold in her other hand and brushed past me, heading for the door. Crusa, stop! Don't go out there alone! I cried, reaching towards her, and then immediately falling back towards my father. She turned around to face me, and just as she did, a flaming arrow crashed through the window to fly past her ear, it caught Ascanius' hair on its way past before thudding into the floor. The servants rushed to put out the flames in the house, pointlessly really, it was all going to burn in a matter of hours or less, while I grabbed the edge of Crusa's cloak and threw it over the boy's head, patting him so wildly I was almost hitting him. It worked, the flames went out, and Ascanius seemed mostly unharmed, just shaken. I put my arms around both of them, and we all three stood there for a moment, shaking. I was roused by my father's hand on my shoulder. Come on, he said gruffly. We'd better go if we're going. Never so relieved in my life, I threw a quick command over my shoulder to the servants to come with us if they wanted to, grabbed my cloak and led my family out of the house through the back entrance. Crusa had little Ascanius by the hand. My father had gathered up the household gods into a makeshift sack and was carrying them. Outside, the chaos was even worse than it had been when I got to the house barely 15 minutes earlier. There were little fires everywhere, spreading from arrows scattered around the ground. Meanwhile, the huge blaze that had been burning for the last couple of hours was roaring in our ears and we could feel the heat of it on our backs. Homes and buildings had started to collapse as their wooden beams burned away, and even stone buildings were starting to crumble in the intense heat. I looked back for a few seconds. There were no Greeks right behind us, but I saw one of the city's great towers as it shook, and then suddenly, as I was looking at it, 
It simply collapsed in on itself and folded like a dress dropped from its hook. A huge cloud of smoke, dust and ash poured out towards us as the tower turned into rubble and we all bent double, coughing and choking. There was no time to recover. I grabbed Ascanius' hand and pulled him up, his eyes streaming from the dust and the debris. We have to go, I said, as gently as I could manage. We have to go. The boy nodded, but my father was down. Go, he said, waving me onwards. I can't keep up with you. Go, get yourselves out of here and take these. And he shoved the bag containing the household gods at me. I hesitated for a moment, looking at his frail frame as he hauled himself slowly to his feet and leaned against the wall of a nearby house for support. Then, in one movement, I shoved the household gods back into his arms, bent forward, and swept him up and over my shoulder. He cried in protest, mainly, I think, at the indignity of it, but I had a good grip on him. Holding him steady with one arm and grabbing Ascanius' hand with the other, I yelled, Come on! and set off again through the smoke. We were nearly at the back gates when Anchises, slung over my shoulder and looking behind us, cried, They're here! They're nearly upon us! Hurry! I threw myself through the gates, dragging Ascanius after me. I knew we had to get under whatever cover we could find on the plain. There was a woodland not far from the gates, and we had to get under the trees and as far away from the city as we could before the Greeks saw us. Beyond that, I didn't know what to do, but getting under those trees was the only plan I could make just then. Groaning under my father's weight and worried that my son couldn't keep running much longer, I made one last mad dash for the woods and fell to the ground almost as soon as we got under the branches. Before heading deeper into the trees, I stopped to take stock and find out how many of the servants had managed to keep up with us. I counted heads, and then I counted again, and suddenly I felt like my insides had dropped out of me and my chest was squeezed so hard I could barely breathe. Crusa was not there. What happened? Where is Crusa? I shouted angrily at my father, who had been looking behind us the whole time we were making our escape and surely should have realised she'd fallen behind. I don't know, he wept miserably. She was just behind us after the tower fell, but there was so much dust in my eyes I couldn't keep my head up. When I looked up again, all I saw was Greek soldiers almost on our heels. Why didn't you tell me she was missing? I dropped Ascanius' hand and snatched the household gods from my father, shoving them at the boy instead. I didn't know. I thought she was right behind us, just shadowed by the smoke. The old man started to weep. Wait here, I snapped. I had long since abandoned my shield in the flight, but I still had my sword. I drew it, wiped the blood and sweat from my forehead, and ran back through the gates into the city. I tore off my armour, seemed more likely to get me killed as a Trojan than protect me. Without it, I became an anonymous man in a tunic, running through the streets blindly like everyone else. Where I saw Greek soldiers, I hid. They were ransacking the houses one by one. Everywhere I could hear the screams of women, sometimes the cries of small children. There were no Trojan men left anywhere. I had no idea what had happened to Crusa. Had she paused and been snatched by a Greek soldier? Did she collapse from exhaustion? Was she hit by falling rubble? Did she choke on the dust cloud? Was she still alive? Was she lying injured somewhere? 
Had she already been carried off for some Greek's trophy? I went all the way back to our home. It was completely overrun with Greeks who were carrying off all our treasures. But I was glad to see none of our people. I prayed they had all escaped. I watched one burly soldier leave with Crusa's favourite necklace, another with my own treasured silver wine cup. But of Crusa herself I could see nothing. As I watched, the flames reached the house. The Greek soldiers hurried out, and I stood in the shadows and watched the flames lick higher and higher, consuming our home. Desperate, I started wandering the streets, screaming Crusa's name. I found my feet working their way towards the front gates and the huge hordes of Greeks. If she had been captured, I would find out, and I would die in a futile attempt to rescue her. Anchises and Ascanius were safe. They would find their way to help without me, surely. As I ran almost blindly down a narrow alley, I was pulled to a halt when the image of Crusa suddenly appeared in front of me. I don't mean she had quickly come out of some building or run down the alley the other way. I mean she appeared. One minute the alley was empty, the next she was standing in it. She looked larger than she had before, and although she stood in the middle of the street, well lit by the flames all around us, she seemed barely more substantial than a shadow and strangely drained of colour. I tried to speak, but my voice stuck in my throat. She spoke for me. Aeneas, my love, I'm so sorry, she said. It's too late for me. Don't look for me anymore. My body is already burning in the fires that are killing our city. I'm safe now. Fire found me before the Greeks did. I won't be carried off to be some Greek soldier's prize or whore or given to his wife like an early birthday present. They cannot touch me now. How can I leave you, I wept, unburied, unmourned. I'm burning, already burning, she said. My ashes will be buried in the rubble and so the gods will be satisfied. But you, you have a long life to live. You will sail across the seas, a long and hard journey far to the west. You will find a rich land where a gentle river flows between farmers' fields. You will marry their princess and be happy and our son and his son's sons will rule over the whole land and more. Your name will never die, and as long as you tell my story, nor will mine. But if you stay here, none of it will happen. Our son won't make it without you, and you'll die alone and forgotten here in this wreckage. Now go. I tried to wrap my arms around her one last time, but she shimmered a little and simply dissolved into the air, and I found myself grasping nothing. could have just folded up and lain down right then and there, but I thought of my son, wiped my eyes, and made my way back through the streets, being even more careful to keep to the shadows and avoid being seen by any Greek. 
The sky was just beginning to lighten before the dawn, and I knew I had to get back under the trees before the sun rose or I'd be a dead man. It was a quicker journey this time. I was alone and unburdened, and the fires were finally starting to die down. In the distance, I could even hear the Greeks starting to call for water to put them out, so they could loot whatever remained of the city's treasures. Their victory was complete. They had no more need of weapons or flames. I slipped out of the back gates and scrambled down to the woods just in time, as the sun was just threatening to peek over the horizon. When Anchises looked at me with the question in his eyes, I just shook my head. I didn't know what to say to Ascanius, but he had been crying hard, and when he saw me alone, I think he already knew. "'Which way now?' asked my father, taking Anchises' hand and hoisting the household gods under the other arm. I took a deep breath. "'Towards the sea,' I said. "'We have a long journey to make.' As we walked, I asked Anchises quietly, Do you think the dead have some kind of divine knowledge? Do you think they can tell the future? I don't know, he said honestly. Perhaps. Why do you ask? No reason, I said. But I think we need to find ourselves a ship and sail west. The End Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast that retells and discusses ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. So this episode's story is very famous. It's from Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid. This is a Roman myth that has been developed out of a Greek myth cycle and is set in what is now modern Turkey. And the main characters are technically not Greeks. They are Trojans. Now, they pretty much behave like Greeks and worship Greek gods because it's a Greek myth um, but they are technically not Greeks <laughs> they are they are Trojans in what is now Turkey um, the site of Hizalik um, is uh, it's actually quite near the Dardanelles um, ironically very close to a horrific um, battle from modern warfare the first world war battle of Gallipoli took place uh, not far away Virgil writes this poem about this legendary founder of Rome uh, partly to please Augustus. Um, this is uh, the supposed legendary ancestor. He's also the ancestor of the Julii. They're all descended from the goddess Venus, supposedly. Um, so he's, he's trying to sort of suck up to Augustus, basically, by writing this poem about Rome's legendary founder. But he's avoiding the sensitive topic of Rome's rather better known legendary founder uh, because of the fratricide. So he goes for Aeneas the Trojan, who escapes the Trojan War um, and sails to Italy to found the village that will eventually become the city of Rome. And this is basically the story of refugees fleeing a war zone. Um, so if you've had a look at the description, it's covered in content warnings. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty grim. The Trojan War cycle as a whole is very much a, a story of war and the consequences of war. In the Aeneid, uh, and I think in Homer's poems as well, the Trojans and the Greeks all sort of know each other. Certainly in the Aeneid, Aeneas knows who everybody is. I've made them anonymous um, just to try and make it feel a bit more real. 
um, a bit more like a real war uh, rather than something where everybody knows exactly who everyone else is. So uh, the Greeks are all anonymous. The dead prince is actually Dephobus. Paris died a while earlier. Uh, and the Greek uh, who kills Priam is Pyrrhus. Uh, this is famously described in Hamlet. And I did take some inspiration from Hamlet, the, particularly the detail of Pyrrhus cutting off Priam's ear. I've mixed up the descriptions of Priam's death from Hamlet and the Aeneid together. Uh, I've also taken the reference to the topless towers of Ilium from Dr Faustus, which is a, another famous reference um, to the towers of Troy. Um, and I've toppled one of them. <laughs> and I've based the description of that on video footage from 9-11. I've given Crusa a bit more agency than she usually has. Now, um, in the UK, we pronounce it Crusa. Um, Creusa would really be a more accurate pronunciation, but uh, uh, UK English, we tend to say Crusa. I've given her a bit more agency um, than she has in the poem. I've you know, fiddled with the characterization a little bit, mostly because I've taken out the gods from any direct role. Um, so in the poem... Greek goddess Aphrodite, who is Venus to the Romans, and this is a Roman poem written in Latin, so Venus. Venus is the one who tells Aeneas that he must flee. Um, I've made that his own decision. The dead being able to tell the future is in the original poem. It is a very, very common trope. In a Roman context, um, the dead have a divine aspect, the manes, uh, that becomes a god, essentially, when they die. There's an excellent new book about that I'm in the process of reading and reviewing at the moment, The Ancient Roman Afterlife by Charles W. King, uh, which is all about the divine aspect of the manes. Uh, but the trope goes back to Greek ghost stories as well. So it's not just connected um, to the, the Roman idea of the divine manes. Um, it's a wider spread idea than that. Uh, and the Greeks also have stories about um, ghosts that have access to divine knowledge and so on. Um, so it's very, very common trope, um, which Crusoe does here, and we'll see it again, I'm sure, in future stories. Uh, in Virgil, Aeneas actually puts his armour back on to go look for her. Um, but I, uh, I thought that was a bit of a silly idea, so I changed it. <laughs> the household gods is a very Roman idea. Again, that's because it's a Roman poem. Even though it's set during the Trojan War, which would technically be Bronze Age, Ionian coast. And the concern for your name being remembered, on the other hand, I've taken from Homer, um, from the other major Trojan War epic poem, Homer's Iliad. Um, we've had a story from the Iliad before, uh, Achilles and Patroclus. I think that was episode two. Um. And in the Iliad, the heroes are all very much concerned with being remembered, um, with the need for glory, the need to be remembered, the need for a glorious remembrance. Um, so I've incorporated that into this. Generally speaking, if we're reading an ancient text, um, we should read servants as slaves anywhere that the English is translated as servants. It should usually say slaves. I've given the ancient Trojans the benefit of the doubt. Um, classical Greeks would certainly, it would be slaves. Roman servants would definitely nearly all be slaves, maybe some freed people. Uh, female survivors, as I mentioned in the story, would be enslaved by the conquering army. This is the thing that Crusoe is most afraid of. So this is why she's almost believed to have died, because it means she escaped slavery. It's what will happen to Hecuba, the queen, um, after this story. Men and boys who might grow up 
um, to want revenge will be killed. Uh, that was standard. Um, but I decided we don't really know what the situation was in Bronze Age Troy. So for once, I'm going to give them servants instead of slaves. Also, Crusoe appears larger than she did in life. Uh, this is another really common trope, especially women. Female ghosts or deities that look larger than human women is an incredibly common ancient trope for some reason. Uh, and we saw it a couple of episodes back in the story of Curtius Rufus, where he saw a giant woman who was the, the spirit of Africa. So I am going to stop talking at that point because I am delighted to be joined on this episode uh, by two very special guests, Dr. Olivia Knops, musicologist, and my brother Ed Harrison, who's singer and composer, and who has composed uh, all of the music um, for this podcast, uh, composed and performed all of the music for the podcast so far. And Olivia has provided the vocals uh, for the music that you heard for the first time today. So, Olivia, can you tell us a bit about the music we heard at the end of this story? Yes, so this is a piece called The Song of Sikaloth. And it's actually an epitaph from a funeral headstone, which dates from about the first or second century AD. And it's actually really important to musical history because it's the first um, existing piece of music in its totality that we have. We have lots of um, uh, fragments from before then, but nothing that exists complete. So it was a headstone that was discovered in 1883 um, while they were building a railway through Aydin, which is the ancient Greek town of Trals in modern Turkey. And actually, the unfortunately, the director took home this headstone, sawed off the bottom and made it into a flower pot stand. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> which was just a great shame because he completely obliterated the last line of text. So what we actually have on here are two sections of text um, and over in Greek and over the top of one of them, we have these weird dots and dashes. And it's taken a long time, but we've realised that this is actually music. And what I sang earlier is uh, a modern reconstruction of that music. So the text actually says, um, I, the stone, am an image and Seikolos placed me here to be a long-lasting monument to immortal memory. And it's it's also written there that it's Seikolos to Euterpe, who some people think it's his wife. Uh, some people think that might be um, the muse um, of music, um, which would be a nice idea. And some people think it actually might be his father. So it's Seikolos of Euterpe. We're not quite sure of the Greek translation there. And it might imply that Seikolos is a musician himself and comes from a long line of musicians. So the actual text of the music that we have, I won't say it for you in Greek, but the translation is, um, as long as you live, let the world see you and do not make yourself miserable. Life is short and time demands its due. So as you can hear, this is quite um, a happy text to have put on a gravestone. So if we look at the music further, we find that it's actually, there. Well, there's some argument here, it's either in the Phrygian or the Ionian modes. And these modes um, don't correspond to our medieval ideas of modes. So if any of you are musicians, get that out of your head straight away. These are the Greek <laughs> modes, they're quite different They, um, in terms of what notes they have and their tonality and their tuning. And they often sound quite foreign to us now. But the Phrygian mode is associated 
um, by, uh, I think it's Aristophanes, actually. Um, do I mean Aristophanes? I can't mean Aristophanes. Aristotle. Aristotle. Um, with I his... mix those two up all the time. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Harry, so, Harry. I've, I've mixed those up in lectures. It's, it's a problem. <laughs> um, yeah, so Aristotle talks about how the Phrygian mode is associated with ecstatic excitement and can create that feeling in people. And this mode came out of the wild peoples of Phrygia and is often played on the aulos, which is a reed instrument, um, which the Romans then had their own equivalent, the tibia. And it's a double reed and it's um, associated with this Phrygian mode. So all Greek modes are associated with different emotions and you don't play them with other um with the, so, so you wouldn't play uh, a sad mode with a happy piece of music. So it's quite interesting here that we have this um, Phrygian mode, or possibly Ionian, but that's also quite a happy mode, with this ostensibly sad text. It is absolutely fascinating, and I know that Ed warned me about that when I was developing the story for this month, <laughs> because he said, oh, we've got this music that's... Um, that, that's from a, uh, an epitaph that it's somebody mourning dead wife and I immediately thought right find a dead <laughs> wife story and then he sent me a message saying it's not really very sad though. <laughs> it's quite triumphant <laughs> which is yeah. why, absolutely which is why I ended up going um, for the Aeneid despite the fact it's Roman and not Greek um, Ed how did you find the process of of adapting the Greek music for the podcast and how did it compare to the work you've done for the podcast before yeah, so when you're writing music for a, a modern audience, it's often difficult to get across exactly what you uh, you want them to feel where, in contrast to what might be literally historically accurate. So um, for, particularly when it comes to ancient music, because as Olivia has been saying, this is the earliest that we uh, have in totality, and it's from AD, not even BC or anything like that. So... Um, it's difficult to find something which uh, would be accurate if it were to be done. Well, we don't know how to do it correctly. Not absolutely. Yeah. So what you do instead is you tend to use other media that people are aware of and comfortable with and refer back to that. So a good example actually is um, if you look at sci-fi music, the um, sci-fi music of the early 20th century. So, um, the day the earth stood still and that sort of thing, up to about the 50s, uh, Quatermass experiment, that sort of thing. Um, they use a lot of weird and wonderful tonalities and sounds, like um, I think there was like three theremins and four waveform oscillators or something like that on the soundtrack for the day the earth stood still. But then when, I think it was uh, 1968, 2001, the Space Odyssey came out and they used a classical soundtrack with orchestra mm. and they yes exactly both the strausses people often get confused about that there are two strausses both of them are in 2001 um but very yeah it's very confusing but it's an entirely classical soundtrack and then about a decade mm. later you get star wars and close encounters of the third kind come out who john williams wrote the music for and he writes a completely orchestral uh, well bits of choirs in there as well but it's it's basically um, an orchestral soundtrack 
And you see a shift in the way that sci-fi music was used in films after that period. Everyone else now starts using orchestral music for space rather than trying to make it sound weird. Um, and it's a shift that came about because those films were so popular. That is now what people associate with space music. Hmm. So to take it back to the ancient world, um, we don't really have accurate music for the ancient world. So in a similar way to space, we don't know what space sounds like. We don't really know what it sounds like. So we make our own language of how to describe what that music is. Um, mm. Some of the most influential writers for that sort of music are... So if you take the music for Lawrence of Arabia, for example, it's set in, in a desert. In, in, a, in a dessert? In a pudding? No, <laughs> it's set in the desert, um, which is something that we also often associate with the ancient world. So... Um, you're drawing comparisons from different associations um, to, to make you feel what we think you should feel for that sort of thing. So um, I think you mentioned to me before, actually, uh, it sounded a little bit like the music for Jesus of Nazareth. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and Lawrence of Arabia and Jesus of Nazareth's music were both written by Maurice Shah. And he, he oh, established yeah. this sort of sound world of sort of large... It's orchestral, but it's quite uh, sweeping music with large spaces of, you know, um, strings going from deep to quite high mm. and nice flowing tunes. Um, when I heard the, the epitaph, uh, well, I saw the modern notation of it, um, it was quite a, an open tune. It starts with an open fifth. Um, and the mode that it's written in, in modern terms, is uh, essentially in a major key. Um which is what we would associate with happy, which again goes back to what Olivia was saying about the modes um, being reflective of moods. Um, mm. And it's, but it's with this, this sort of openness of that first open fifth. Again, actually going back to John Williams, he uses open fifths all the time. Um, but it, it establishes. that sounded familiar. What was that, sorry? <laughs> so I knew that phrase sounded familiar oh, for yeah. a reason. Yeah, John yeah, Williams yeah. Uses open well, exactly, yeah. But it gives that feeling of openness and and uh, and a mm. large scale to things. Um, and again, ancient world we often associate with deserts, and that, I mean they weren't all living in deserts. I think it's pretty obvious to know. But a lot of people will associate it with that. So I'm drawing on because we're British. It's hotter and sunnier exactly. than Britain. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, it's a desert. Yeah. But it's it's all about drawing on associations. Can I just interject here? Of course. And Ed, I completely agree with what you're saying about drawing on associations and creating something which a modern audience can connect to. I just want to pick up on one point that you said about how we don't really know what um, ancient music sounded like, because we, we really do actually have quite a good mm -hmm. idea about what it sounded like. Mm. We've got so many fantastic sources um, that give very good descriptions of the music of the time. Um, some of it is um, quite difficult for us to reconstruct, but it gives us a good idea. And there's actually a lot of good reconstructions out there. But I think what Ed has done has been really useful because if you were to have just a reconstruction of ancient music, it can sound quite bare and quite um, unimaginative to the modern listener. So Reconstructions I've heard of ancient music always just sound weird. Yes, we don't really have the proper instruments anymore. 
We have mm. some of the instruments. So we have the Aulos. Um, we have lots of reconstructions of that, oddly, um, which is actually probably what would have been used to play this. And obviously, we still have voices. Um, but you're right in that saying we don't have all of those instruments. I'm not sure um, if all of your listeners would be aware of HBO's Rome. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned it. Okay. I mentioned it to my students all the time, but okay. I can't remember if I've mentioned it on the podcast. But I just rewatched it. It's just as good as I remembered. So the music for that by Jeff Beale is actually a better reconstruction, reconstruction, I say, um, than uh, other pieces which use more modern instruments. So Jeff Beale in that used... Um, all of the reconstructed instruments he could find at the time from across the ancient world. So um, just to go back to this particular piece of music, it's really quite interesting that this is from the 1st or 2nd AD rather than much earlier. So what I was talking about in terms of um, you can only use this mode for this emotion, um, that's from much earlier in Greek history, um, Okay. It's one of the best sources that we actually have for all of this is Plato. And I absolutely love Plato because all he does is just sit there and bitch about everything <laughs> he doesn't like about what's going on in Greek society. Um, and I, he, I think he would have been the worst dinner guest in the world because he's just going to sit there and tell, be really boring and tell you how wonderful his ideas are. And I'm not sure anyone else gets a chance because he just has a conversation with himself the whole time. But anyway, enough about my thoughts on Plato. Like but one of the things that he... <laughs> Well, well, Plato wrote Socrates, so that's oh, not that a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that Plato talks about is how in his idealised republic, um, you won't be allowed to have certain instruments. You won't be allowed to have certain modes. Phrygian is one of the ones that's going out the window, incidentally. Um, and you will not be allowed to break the rules. And music's not going to have what we would call now harmony, different lines at the same time it's all going to be single lined music um and he's saying how he hates when musicians have got into the habit of doing this and they fill in the intervals so that fifth that mm. ed was talking about earlier that would have been filled in by plato's time now by the time we get to the first um, century ad with the romans the romans were well known for not having any musical originality of their own they just copied That's from everyone not restricted else to music <laughs> yeah. And this is why I bring up Jeff Beale, because he's using instruments from all over the Roman Empire, which is probably quite similar to what the Romans would have been doing. The Romans just went around and like, we'll have some of that and we'll have that instrument and oh, we like that mode and we're going to do this. So we've got Plato saying, oh, I hate it when people do this, which is wonderful as musicologists, because now we know that's what people were doing. And then we also see by the time we get to the Romans, okay, they're just having some of this and some of that. Um, I think it's Aristoxenus, and he talks about how the people of Poseidia um, were Greek and then became Roman. And it's at that point that they start playing harmonies that the audience wants to listen to rather than what was correct for the purpose. So in a tragedy, they suddenly have what we would now think of as a major piece of music, and that wouldn't be allowed. And that's under Roman influence. So actually what Ed's doing in terms of creating a piece of music which works for a modern audience is incredibly <laughs> Roman. 
which is wonderful. Deliberately so well done, Ed. Course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Deliberately <laughs> appropriate. Yes. Ed, do you, do you find it helps to use what we know of real ancient music, or do you find that for you as a composer, it can be more helpful to kind of set that aside and think more about the kind of cinematic language you were talking about earlier when you're working on it? It's good to use both, I think. Um, as I say, it's difficult to be completely accurate. I mean, we even have difficulty being completely accurate with classical music, um, and that wasn't all that long ago. Mm. Um, there's arguments about very specific technicalities and everything, so you, you, to get a 100% accurate performance is probably impossible. But um, to use what we do know, well, well, it would be a bit silly not to use what we do know, in a way. Um, mm. Like Olivia was saying about the... Um, oh, sorry, I've forgotten his name, Jeff. Jeff Beale. Beale. Beale, like Jeff Beale was using, um, he used the information that he had. The score isn't an ancient score. It is a new score. And it uses the associations that I was talking about earlier as well as using mm. those instruments. Um, you'll often find some composers will use ancient uh, systems and music and incorporate it into a more modern aesthetic. So they'll sometimes use an ancient music, but compose for it as if it were a modern music, uh, modern instrument. It's not particularly accurate, but what it does do is it evokes the idea of the ancient with the sound of the instruments used, but in a manner that we can understand. Which I suppose kind of threads through as well as that language develops, because I'm pretty sure there's a little bit of the score for I, Claudius in the score for Rome. <laughs> and I can't remember who wrote the score for I, Claudius. So I would no, have to I look it up. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but I'm sure that alongside the the actual ancient music, um, Beale has got little hints of I, Claudius in there as well. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I'd need to listen again, to be honest. Olivia, what was it like performing this music? Um, I really enjoyed it. I've done it a couple of times before. Um, I'm, as a musicologist, this isn't actually my field, but it's an area of music that I really enjoy. Um, I'm interested in 20th century British musicology, but I absolutely adore performing early music and ancient music. So I've done this song a few times um, and it was just wonderful to be able to sing this, especially during lockdown. It was wonderful to be able to do some performance <laughs> and to have a new interpretation of it. But when I've done it before, it's always been uh, very much the emphasis has been on authentic performance, um, which is incidentally now a dirty word in musicology um, because we know that we can't yeah. ever be authentic but at the time everyone was talking about authentic performance so it was wonderful to right. work with Ed in this way to create a modern interpretation and what did you both think about using it for this particular story as I said when Ed said it was a lament for a dead wife but it sounds triumphant <laughs> um that was a challenge to find a story to fit it to. Uh, what did you think about the choice? <laughs> yeah, I think this was incredibly appropriate. Um, as you mentioned earlier, it's a Roman story, but it's set in Greeks. Um, and Well, it's set in modern yes. Turkey with Greeks in it. So, in fact, guys. even better <laughs> since this piece of music is from modern Turkey. So wonderful. Perfect. Um, it all fits in beautifully. And <laughs> love to pretend as, I knew that. as we've talked about, this is a Roman influenced era piece of music. Um, so, 
and the Romans were all about looking back at the Greeks' approach to music and trying to be like that, but knowing that they couldn't. So this is actually a perfect, although it's a bit later than your story, um, and a really perfect piece to do for this. And we, it's something I think that we've lost um, often in the West is a real appreciation of celebrating life mm. Um, at death, which was incredibly important to both the Greeks and Romans to celebrate life at death. So I think this works really well for your story. It's interesting because when um, when you first suggested it to me before I'd looked at the actual music um, and you said it was a, a, a lament for a dead wife, um, I had imagined that it would be sad because that's what we in the West mm. these days think of. Um, and it is just how we, how we uh, process um, loss. It's not necessarily um, all doom and gloom, but it's we are sad that we no longer have the people who were with us anymore. And it is an interesting difference in philosophy just uh, to look back at how they viewed it um, and that it was a celebration of life. Mm, and it's maybe something that we could maybe recover a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. Might be quite nice to... Uh, I suppose we do sometimes. Um, we try to have a wake as a celebration of life and Ed, what have you thought about the way I've used your music in the podcast in general? Because, of course, you write it and you send it to me and then I do whatever I want with it, which might <laughs> be quite disconcerting for you. Oh, it's, it's quite a common feeling for composers, I think. But no, <laughs> no, it's good. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing about the process because you often put a lot in there that doesn't necessarily come across absolutely clearly anyway. Uh, for example, at the beginning of, I think it was the other piece you used in this episode, um, the... The, it starts with very, very quiet um, string spiccato, which you probably won't be able to hear because it is just too quiet. Um, and it was, the in, uh, intention was to get the effect of a sort of a chill down the spine thing, just on the edge of hearing. But Because <laughs> this is the scary music, isn't it, that, that you wrote? Because we had the tracks labelled according scary, to that's mood. Right, yes. So we have scary, the... we have spooky, we have romantic. <laughs> yeah, and this that's is right. The scary this is one. The, uh, yes, certified scary music. Um but yeah, the, the very beginning <laughs> yeah. of it, I was going for a sort of ad, that, that sort of chill down the spine thing. It is very, very quiet, um, but it is uh, an orchestra of string instruments all individually playing the Dies Irae, um, which, oh, well, well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's the uh, from the Latin funeral mass uh, or uh, requiem mass. Um, I think it might even have come before that, but was certainly used in it. Um, and it's, it appears in a whole host of classical music, all on the theme of death. Um, anything from Mozart to Berlioz to um, Jerry Goldsmith, I think, you know, um, almost it, it crops up everywhere. Mm. Um, and it's almost inaudible, but I stuck it in yeah. there right at the beginning, um, just in case anyone would be able to hear it. And Olivia, you mentioned modes a few times, which is not something I'm terribly familiar with because I'm not a musician, but are they related to emotion? How does that work in ancient music in general? So a mode is, if you think about our modern scales and we've got different keys, that's the closest mm -hmm. we have today. And as Ed mentioned earlier, we have major and minor being happy and sad, but it's a lot more uh, prescribed for the ancient Greeks, certainly, in that some of these modes have this emotion and some have that emotion. So you would use different modes for different purposes. So there's a great mm. story um, about a Greek symposium, uh, so or a dinner party, and 
the guests get into a fight and the host isn't... Is this NATO's symposium or is this a different symposium? Uh, no, this is just at an evening party. Not necessarily... It's not okay. Plato's symposium. It's just a dinner party. Okay. Yeah, they, they got drunk and had a party in Plato's, if I yes. remember right. <laughs> so they're all there. They're having a fight. And the host calls in his musicians. And he gets to them to play in the Lydian mode, which um, will calm you down. And suddenly everyone stops fighting. And it has this... Uh, physical effect on them in that when they hear this music they're no longer angry and so the this particular mode would also be played during negotiations so that the people you're trying to persuade are going to be more agreeable to listening to you and of course music is used in the same way that we use it today for a whole host of different uh purposes so you would have music that you would play when you're going into battle and that's especially what we think of in terms of roman music because a lot of their instruments are horns and we have different music that can be played for a charity uh, sorry a tragedy not a charity um we have <laughs> special music which is associated with dionysus and he so he has um divi rhythms um, and sorry, Divi Rams, and they are especially associated with him, and they're very wild and over the top, and they make people feel like they're drunk and they're intoxicated, and that's the feeling that the god gives you. And the Greeks believe firmly that each of these modes should only um, be played at those times. And then, as I mentioned, we start getting the Romans. Um, and they just throw it in wherever. So they're going to have uh, a Dithy Ram at perhaps a funeral because they want to have a wild party and they're Roman and that's what they want to do. <laughs> yeah, I can think of some Roman texts that would include that, actually. I think uh, Trimalchio's dinner that I was talking about with Liz in the previous episode would, <laughs> would probably include that. Um, and one final kind of thought for, for both of you. What would you both think is the main thing that would make music sound ancient for modern listeners? Is it a particular instrument, a particular sound, a chord? What, what would be the one thing that you would need to put in a modern composition to make it sound ancient? I don't think there's any particular one sort of magic bullet, so to speak. But it's, it's as I was saying before, it's, uh, it's associations that we're used to. So it's using um, uh, a lot of open chords open fifths without thirds that sort of thing mm. um it's not necessarily going to be absolutely accurate to every circumstance but modern audiences uh, see it as more ancient um because of the way it's used in modern media mm. and these days we are almost always either major or minor it's very rare to get um an open chord um used prominently in modern music unless they're going for a particular effect mm. That said, a lot of uh, very modern music um, does use it for this explicit purpose of subverting expectation and not using um, harmonic music. That's a whole different kettle of fish, though. Um, <laughs> yeah, orchestrations that are often used. So um, a lot of string orchestras, um, that sort of thing, um, open open chord structures. It's, it's, there's no one thing that will make it sound ancient, but using a collection of things that are used uh, a lot will reinforce that idea in people's heads. Right. Yeah, I really agree with Ed. Um, I think as well, not using um, instruments which perhaps sound quite raw in their sound, and mm. that might not necessarily be a 
authentic um, ancient instrument. Mm. It might be something from the uh, Arabic and Eastern world. Um, and those instruments like the duduk, um, which has a very strange sound, but having that come in sounds... Uh, what word can I use? What about other other yes Yes. and those instruments sound very other to us here in the west so that's a really great thing to use and as ed mentioned using those open um, tonalities i think it's we're as he says very used to hearing whole tones so to suddenly maybe have a scale which has some strange tuning in there which might be more authentic in style that will immediately just flag up to the listener on a subconscious level that something's a bit different, a bit strange. And you can identify those things. So I was sitting with my partner the other evening listening to some Chinese music, as it purported to be. And we both were looking at each other going, this is entirely wrong because the Western <laughs> tuning system was mm. there, but it was Chinese instruments and it just didn't yeah. work. Um, yeah. So I think using that slightly different tuning system will flag that up for the audience even if they don't notice it themselves and that can be you know as ed has done used with modern instruments but it's still putting all of those flags up brilliant well ed harrison and olivia nops thank you so much not just for joining me to chat about this on the podcast but for all the work you've done on the music (laughs) the music is absolutely fantastic it sounds brilliant so thank you both so much uh, for all the work that that you've done on it and uh hopefully maybe get you both back at some point if we uh find any more ancient greek funeral events (laughs) that we can use we'll have a look (laughs) (laughs) no thank you for having me on not just to talk on the podcast but also to write the music it's been really interesting to explore the different uh, styles, um, like encompassed in, in writing for the different moods that you're after. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. If you'd like to know more about anything we've talked about today, uh, for the Aeneid, I would as ever recommend A.S. Klein's translation at poetryintranslation.com. There are lots of copies of Hamlet available online, um, so just Google Hamlet. If you have access, Grove Music Online has lots of information on ancient music. Uh, There's also a book by Oliver Strunk, Source Readings in Music History. Uh, That's also available online or more traditionally as a book. You may also want to have a look at Plato's Symposium or Plato's Republic. Those are available online from the usual websites uh, like uh, perseus.tufts.edu and several others. And the book I mentioned earlier, say on the Roman afterlife, is Charles W. King, The Ancient Roman Afterlife. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Creepy Classics. We will be back with another ancient, medieval or early modern ghost story next month. So to play us out, um, I'm going to play in full the English translation of the track. So uh, you heard... um, the Greek, original Greek um, on the, the new music that we used within the episode. Um, I, I'm now going to play uh, the same music, but with the English translation instead of the Greek. And I'll just play that in full to round out the episode um, once I've finished the credits. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison with vocals by Olivia Knopps. 
It is produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University.